90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm trying to survive this ice storm. (laughs) There's not any ice there. (laughs) There's like a little bit of ice on the gate when I came home, a little bit. When I came home early, because they canceled all the schools yesterday afternoon, which is a surefire, you know, that definitely means we're not getting anything. <laughs> oh, yeah. Canceling before there is anything on the ground is a great deterrent to the Man, weather. Man, I know. And they keep doing it. They keep pushing it back and back. Like, my son's school got canceled at, like, 5 o'clock yesterday when it was, like, 50 degrees outside. <laughs> wow. So. I remember things getting canceled, like, 10 minutes before I had to get in the car to go. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. That's exactly how it should be. And we wound up going to work and they canceled it halfway through. But, you know, yeah, Oklahoma State was out today. So everybody was real angry <laughs> that we had a half day of classes. <laughs> yeah. But we'll see. It'll probably be terrible tomorrow morning. So, you know, Oklahoma weather. Yep. Well, I'm actually not far from you right now. I am back down in Houston. <laughs> Yeehaw, man. <laughs> Um, Yep, so I am down here teaching Python again. Yeah, that's exciting. Hey, I'm going to be in Houston next month. Um, We're going to go to LPSC. My student got accepted, so I am super excited about going back to Bayou City for that. Yes, and for those that uh, haven't heard us talk about it before, that's the Lunar and Planetary Science Convention, which is an awesome convention to go to. It's the 50th anniversary, too. There's cool (laughs) t-shirts. I might have to arrange to be in town that week. I figured you would. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, so you're down in Houston, and I'm assuming you're just sitting there writing shows and all your time off, right? (laughs) I have written a couple, yeah. (laughs) Excellent. I love it. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, I've tried to be steered a little bit by some feedback from our listener survey, but that is still live. I want to link it in the show notes. If you have not taken it yet, please do go take the listener survey as that's going to help us shape the next 200 episodes. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for everyone who has taken it. And as John just said, we're taking the feedback seriously. <laughs> so it's not a waste of your time. Please, uh, please go let us know how to get better. Yes. And if you requested stickers, yes, if you complete the survey, you can get stickers. <laughs> Uh, then those will be going out. Uh, I'll probably leave the survey open this week and next week, and then we'll go ahead and close it. Excellent. And Uh I have a little bit of an announcement. I mean, it's just a little announcement, right? No big deal. Right. Uh, (laughs) So folks have heard that I've been on the road quite a bit down here teaching or going to different universities and doing some of my hardware consulting. Uh, which we haven't talked too much about on the show, other than I go help people with hardware problems. And when I have problems, we talk about it a lot. <laughs> That's true. Uh, so I am actually going to be leaving my full-time employment, and beginning in May, I will be working for myself. Yay! I wish yeah, I so it's uh, <laughs> it's exciting. It's terrifying. Yeah, it is scary. <laughs> Um, I think that we can keep you busy just, you know, with the magnetometer, so it's fine. (laughs) We got a couple other machines that students are breaking. It's totally cool. And I'm sure we're not the only lab that has this problem. 
So no, you're not. In <laughs> fact, I, I have enough work coming in right now that it was a pretty easy case to make. Ah, oh, that's so awesome. I uh, am super excited. That being said, that doesn't mean I don't want more work. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I'm always looking for interesting jobs. So that I'll, I'll put that out there as a little form of advertisement. Uh, the accompanying part of this, though, is that since I am leaving my employment in the Boulder area, I'm actually going to be moving back to Arkansas with my wife. Yay! I'm even more excited about that since you'll be <laughs> way closer to come, you know, fix my stuff. I mean, hang out with. <laughs> right, so I'll just be a few hours from OU. Uh, it's much more economical for my business to operate, not in the Denver metro area. <laughs> yeah, I think anyone that's been there would uh, agree with that. Right. Uh, so that's exciting, but that also means that we'll probably be trying to record some shows in advance because uh, my life is going to be completely turned upside down in late April and early May. Yeah. Yeah, bad news. <laughs> but that's okay because that's field camp time. So, you know, it's all right if we take a hiatus, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to be an interesting few months for me, especially right now as I'm trying to juggle the, the commitments from my business and still having my job. Uh, I know we have some listeners that follow some of the content that I make for Unidata, like the MetPy Mondays. Mm-hmm. And those are actually going to continue. So I will be subcontracting for Unidata for a few hours to month to keep making that kind of educational video content. Great. That's awesome. I know that is important for not just our listeners, but lots of meteorologists out there. Right. So that's uh, that's the big announcement, and I'm really excited about it. I've waited a few weeks to start talking about it until we knew that things were coming through. Uh, but... Barring any major disaster, my business will actually be moving into a separate facility from my house, which is going to be a great stress relief and also provide <laughs> me things like three-phase power that I desperately need. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to carry any more magnetometer parts up the stairs, man. <laughs> that was real stressful. <laughs> yeah, we had to disassemble multiple things I've built for people to get them out of the basement. No disassemble. <laughs> No disassemble, as, uh, as Johnny Five would say. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, this will be, I'm real excited to just walk into a building. This will be real good. <laughs> uh, me too. Having the capability to drive a forklift in with stock and equipment on it, it's going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, you're going to be uh, cranking out those three-axis rock deformers in no time with that kind of room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, be doing some more product type things as well as the consulting. Uh, I've been working on some nice laser orientation tools for seismometers and other field instruments that are actually starting to get used out in the field and folks are really liking them along with some more educational things uh, for folks that are just trying to get in to the, the basic technology side of our science. That's me. <laughs> I mean, a little bit, right? <laughs> right. So, I mean, it, it's one of those things where you don't need to hire me to come solder some wires together for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may need me to come redo a lot of things on your apparatus or help write new software. But when it comes to, well, this wire broke, that's something that everybody should be able to do. So part of the content that I'm making is going to be focused on helping 
you learn those basic skills. Yeah. So there will be some kits and some things like that to help folks out. That's super awesome. I'll obviously be hanging out in Arkansas a lot more than usual. I don't go <laughs> I don't go over there because there's too many trees in the way of all the rocks, but <laughs> I'll make an exception. <laughs> it's true, and I'm also going to be pretty close to the University of Arkansas, so I get to go talk to some of the folks over there that are doing some very interesting work as well. Excellent. That's awesome. You'll have to learn to mountain bike. I do have a mountain bike from the days when I had time That's right. to do anything. <laughs> but we'll get back to that later. We'll come full circle with that one. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> so I, I'm really excited about it. I know a couple listeners that have emailed and uh, have been savvy to what I've been doing in my business as I've helped them on various projects. Uh, we're also excited about it. And I am I am glad to finally be confident enough that everything is happening to announce it at large. Yeah. Awesome. That's awesome. Super excited for you moving forward. Yes. So speaking of moving forward (laughs) and technology, (laughs) one of the things that I saw in the preliminary results from the listener survey Mm -hmm. has been that folks would like more deep dives, uh, more series, and more technical topics. Which is crazy because I feel like we both thought that no one wanted to hear us talk about something for more than one show. So I'm real excited about this. <laughs> Me too. And many of you cited the Planetary series as your favorite thing that we've ever done. Oh, thank God, because that took so much work. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're, we're going to be trying to do some more of that. And I thought it'd be fun to kick off a little mini series. With my favorite topic, man, magnetometers. <laughs> Yeah, and I I swore that we had already done this, so I went back and looked through the show notes and listened to some shows, and we've talked about magnetometers of Mm -hmm. different types a little bit in some hand-wavy fashions Mm -hmm. at best, but I thought, you know, we should talk about how these fundamental instruments of geophysics work, and there's several different types. I'm not going to talk about every type of magnetometer. There's tons, and not near all of them are used in geophysics, but there are three or four primary kinds that are used for our work. Right, exactly. So I have a cryogenic magnetometer, which we've touched on before, and how the parts of that work, but that is certainly not a field instrument. Uh, No, (laughs) nobody wants to carry the liquid helium tank around. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And the shielded room that goes with it. Um, But we're going to talk today about fluxgate magnetometers, which are certainly field instruments. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, in fact, these are the instruments that are used for the reference stations where we have these fixed stations all around the globe that are measuring the Earth's magnetic field constantly and help us update things like the global field model. Uh-huh, which has been in the news a lot lately. Yeah, so you want to tell us a little, little snippet about that? <laughs> well, I actually love it because... Um, I had a student send me a headline that said Earth's magnetic field has changed and I actually freaked out enough because her text was so crazy that I grabbed my compass and ran outside just to make sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so what the headline was talking about, which maybe some of you guys have seen these before, is that Earth's magnetic pole is moving. But guess what? It always moves. But it's moving a little bit faster than normal. So usually it sort of wobbles around and does its own thing. And over time, that averages out to a position. And we can get into this in another deep dive show. Um, But it always moves. And 
right now it started to move faster. <laughs> and so they usually put out, is it every five or every 10 years? I believe every five. It's every five, yeah. right? Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, a sort of update for a map of Earth's magnetic field. And they've pushed that update to 2019 instead of 2020 because the North Pole is rocketing towards Siberia. And they think that there's these two sort of big globs in the core that are responsible between Canada and Siberia, and it kind of oscillates between those two. But because it's changing so fast, if you're at high latitudes, you need those updated maps so you can, you know, know where you're at. Um, yeah, so that's why having these stations is very important. And I've also mentioned before that the numbers on the end of runways, the runway numbers, are the magnetic heading of that runway. Yeah. So when these updates are issued, uh, somebody goes out there and repaints the numbers on the runways because they may have changed a degree or two. So runway 16 right might become runway 18 right. That's so great. I never knew what those numbers were at all. So that's uh, all kinds of fun implications from that. But one of the ways we measure and one of the very high-resolution, simple, and really oldest magnetometer design for geophysics is the flux gate. I didn't realize that this was one of the first ones. I mean, I guess it makes sense. But by one of the first ones, you mean like 1800s, 1900s? Uh, 1930s. Okay. When a whole bunch of awesome science was coming out of, you know, the war, right? Right. Anytime in the 1930s uh, or 40s that you hear about some discovery, it was in support of the war effort. And so magnetometers, what would you need that for? For finding submarines, of course. Right. Big metal blobs on a relatively magnetically homogeneous background. They should show up great. And Re they do. Yeah, relatively homogeneous magnetic background. That is an awful wide-sweeping sentence for the seafloor. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> I realize that, yes, the seafloor is far from homogeneous. In fact, it's striped, and we'll get to that. Uh, think about the size of a submarine, though, versus the size of a survey area that a plane might fly over. Okay, all right, that's fine. Right. I'll You're not going to see variations on submarine link scales on the seafloor. Unless the submarine is exactly over a reversal stripe. But yeah, okay, we'll get to that. <laughs> right. <laughs> that would yeah. be a very strange but oddly effective technique for hiding a submarine. Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, man. Okay, next war. I got it. That's very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but these things are on airplanes, huh? Which are big flying metal objects themselves. Yep, so that poses some difficulties. <laughs> uh, these were uh, thought up by some some guys named Ashbrenner and Gobau mm -hmm. in 1936. Okay. And they were affixed to airplanes on these big, long booms that stuck off the back. So big, long boom to get it away from the magnetic field of the airplane, I'm guessing. Right, because magnetic field is a, a 1 over R squared kind of fall off. Right, so far enough away. Nah, is what you can say about the interference. <laughs> right, or, eh, and we can correct it, and it's smaller than the, you know, 100 tons of metal. <laughs> right. The submarine that we're looking for. Right, exactly. How long was the boom? How far? 
I don't know an exact number from looking at some pictures. I'm going to say it was probably 20-ish feet or maybe wow. a little more, maybe 40. Okay. Excellent. I mean, these things aren't huge, so this is not like a massive, you know, big deal to put it on a stick. No, even an early design would have been smaller than a microwave oven. Yeah. So so if you've got that in your head, you know, that's not that big a deal, hanging off an airplane. No. No, yeah. not at all. But they didn't just hang off airplanes, right? I mean, fluxgate magnetometers, they also use these in the water to try to find submarines. Right. So you can tow them behind a ship, obviously far away from the ship. Uh, yes. <laughs> and this is the same design that was used to help confirm plate tectonics by looking at those magnetic reversal stripes on the seafloor. Uh, right. And I mean, this is told in every intro geology class and in oceanography and in my earth history, right? Because... They could tell this magnetometer as they were towing it over these huge sections that it would change orientation. So whatever they were, whatever rocks they were above were suddenly a different polarity. And then it flipped back again and then back again. And those magnetic stripes were formed during, you know, polarity reversals, which happens to Earth's magnetic field on the average of whatever, like 400 to 700,000 years, something like that. Um, and they re- that's recorded at these mid-ocean ridges where they were trolling around looking for submarines. And you know, I am pretty sure that the first time they were going along on their ship and they saw the needle on the strip chart recorder take a dive down to the opposite sign of reading, they're like, oh, we have an equipment problem. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They- I'm sure they turned around and it went back and they said, oh, what? <laughs> exactly yeah that's exactly what i think they probably like just beat the crap out of the magnetometer yeah i mean it's similar to your experience right (laughs) Mm -hmm. that's why that's why that's my (laughs) go-to i'm just gonna hit this thing and maybe it'll work (laughs) and i i really wish that when this parable of geology as it were (laughs) was being told that students could look at a fluxgate magnetometer because these are simple devices and it's amazing that they can be as sensitive as they are and do what they do you can make one i made one when i was an undergraduate in my apartment while i was watching a very early version of netflix when they still sent you dvds uh, (laughs) sat there on the couch and wound thousands and thousands of turns of wire to make one Oh, so you can do something useful like knitting or you could do something like make your own magnetometer Great. <laughs> yeah, this was really cool, actually, to see the outcome of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, exactly, you're winding stuff, right? Because you got to have coils of wire, because that's what you need, right? <laughs> yep, so anytime you think magnetics and electricity, uh, a very bored hour to days of winding wire is what comes to mind. Because <laughs> that whole right-hand rule thing, right? Exactly. So a fluxgate magnetometer is actually two coils of wire. Okay. And so the first one is what we would call the drive coil. And it's wrapped around some kind of magnetically permeable metal. So soft iron, mu metals, the best, but very expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have the pickup coil or the sense coil that's wrapped around the magnetic core that has the drive coil on it. Okay. So 
how far apart are these different coils? They're on top of each other. Right on top of each other. Yes. No space in between. I mean, well, however, yeah. You know. No, no space for practical purposes. Yeah, exactly. In, in, in mine, I wound them directly on top of each other. Oh, okay. All right. Great. So the drive coil, you're going to drive it with an alternating voltage signal. So let's imagine a square wave. And let's say I have a 9-volt battery. I hook it up to the coil, and then I take it off, turn the battery around, and hook it up in the opposite polarity. Take it off, turn it around, hook it back up. Okay. Um, so I'm switching that polarity, and I'm not sure what the commercial ones run at. I think mine ran at something like 10 kilohertz. Okay. It's not all that critical. And when that coil is on... It is an electromagnet, right? right? Everybody's done where they wrap a nail and hook it up to a battery. Yep. So we have this electromagnet that many times a second is changing north pole, south pole, north pole, south pole, north pole, south pole. The ends are flopping back and forth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the misconception that I see a lot about these is, well, we pick that up on the sense coil, and that tells us, how much the Earth's magnetic field offsets that drive signal tells us what the Earth's magnetic field is. And that's just wrong. Okay. Yeah, you got to math this out. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> what it's actually doing, and the reason it's called a flux gate magnetometer, is there's a gating effect. Okay. So when that permeable metal core is highly permeable, i.e. the magnetic field is low, like in that switch time from north to south, the Earth's field is actually attracted to that metal core. And this is sort of the same principle of you've got an iron body buried in the ground, right? The Earth's magnetic field is concentrated around that body. There are more flux lines per a given area. Right. Yep. So it's the same idea. Then, when we turn voltage back onto it, the Earth's field is now gated or sort of shut out. And now we have that magnetic field that we created that's taken over. Gotcha. And so we're constantly letting the Earth's field in, shutting it out. Letting it in, shutting it out. Letting it in, shutting it out. And that means the Earth's magnetic field is increasing and decreasing through our sense coil. As, you, as, as you're flipping polarities. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And when you have a magnetic field that's moving through a coil, you generate an electric current. Right hand rule. Mm-hmm. So. And that's measurable. That's measurable. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing is we're inducing a current in the sense coil by turning on and off the Earth's magnetic field that it sees effectively. That's awesome. Okay, yeah, that is, that's fairly easy. This is Physics 1 stuff. This is Physics 1. Mm-hmm, yeah. Now, <laughs> nice. we're not quite done. No, it's fine. <laughs> I got it, it's cool. I don't need to take an entire class on this or anything. <laughs> so the big catch mm-hmm. is, well... Your magnetic field from your drive coil is also 
right. going in and out and in and out of the sense coil. And that's creating a current too. Right. So we have a couple tricks to get around that. I'm not sure if the first designs did this or not. I couldn't find a lot of information. Mm-hmm. Uh, commonly what we do now is we wind them on what's called a toroid or a ring. Mm-hmm. Or we wind two drive coils around two metal rods, but in opposite directions. Oh, okay. So now your right-hand rule tells you that the flux change that our sense coil should see from those two oppositely wound coils... is going to cancel out. It's going to cancel. Okay. Yep. I'm making, That's how we get around that. I'm, I'm making the right-hand rule, obviously, in the air while you're talking... <laughs> So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but we still gate the Earth's magnetic field in and out. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's one, one way. Uh, another way is this signal's pretty small. I mean, the Earth's magnetic field is big at 70,000 nanoteslas, let's say. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about a few thousand turns of copper wire. Right, we're, yeah. We're not turning a light bulb on with this. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So a lot of times what we do is we put an integrator on the output of that sense coil. Okay. And you can think of as an integrator as basically an adder. So it takes all the current that comes out of that coil and just keeps adding it up. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to have current flowing in and out and in and out. So what we end up getting out of this is a DC voltage, just a, a single voltage that changes directly proportional to the Earth's magnetic field. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep, that makes sense. So now you've got a constant readout of Earth's magnetic field. The only catch is it's Earth's magnetic field in the direction of the coil. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So if you want to get a full, you know, like, what is the Earth's magnetic field where I stand? Well, you need three sensors. Yep. Or you need, like we have, we have a box and we can switch into the X, Y, and Z directions with our one little sensor. Right. Yeah. Okay. So it does change some. In the one I built, you can wave it around and kind of watch on an oscilloscope screen when the signal gets maximized. And then you know you're pointing in the direction of the Earth's magnetic field. Uh So that's pretty cool. Uh Uh-huh. That does mean, in my mind, they're not great field instruments. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's better stuff now. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yep. I mean, if you if you're trying to make a giant metal detector, that's great. Uh, if you're trying to measure the raw field value uh, quickly in the field, this probably isn't what you want to be dragging around. Yeah. This it's really cool to think about just you saying that metal detector. You know, you don't. People probably don't think about it in those terms as to why you see, you know, these metal objects. And it is because of it, those objects attracting Earth's magnetic field and sort of concentrating it there. And that's what you're sensing. That's always really cool to me to stop and think about because you don't think about it in those terms, you know. Yeah, I mean, I like doing the little uh, sort of the geology or geophysics 101 exercise where you actually calculate the how much the flux gets concentrated and sort of plot it like even using you know a basic computer program to plot it you're like 
wow, it really, I, I dropped this steel can and I can see the effect of the flux lines being concentrated through it. I mean, if it was pure steel, you wouldn't, but you know. Well, yeah. It never is. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 super cool. That it seems so simple when you think of it that way, but once you try to start mathing it out, it gets a little bit more difficult. So wait a second. Pause. Why, if it's pure steel, you won't? I thought if you had pure steel, it's not magnetic. Stainless steel. Oh fuck. Sorry. <laughs> okay, so if you drop this steel can, you would see the Earth's magnetic field lines be concentrated through it. Yeah, that's such a cool way of thinking about it. Why can't we just in intro physics say it that simply, you know? Well, we have to get all caught up in the details. Ugh, math. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's that's super cool. That's really neat. And I really wish, like I said, the students would be able to see one of these instruments deconstructed. Uh, Sort of like the one I built, because this isn't some thing that has to be built in a precision laboratory and that requires elusive components (laughs) and an advanced understanding. Uh, You can build this with parts, well, at the time you could build it with parts from Radio Shack, now defunct, uh, (laughs) in an apartment as an undergraduate with no real engineering training or a high school student or a middle school student really yeah i would say it's not rocket science but actually when you break it down rocket science isn't even that hard either you know (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) so yeah (laughs) so it's it's a really simple and elegant instrument in fact it can be downscaled so small now that uh some of the chip scale sensors use this sort of idea oh that's impressive yeah see ours is, is is pretty old and the sensor on it is maybe only, I don't know, like five or six centimeters long. You know, it's pretty tiny too, so. Right. I mean, the big box you have to lug around with it isn't that tiny, but. Right. (laughs) (laughs) The old school ones that we used to take out into the field also had boxes you had to lug around on these terrible contraptions that would like fit on your body and then you'd have this big box with the readouts like hanging down around your waist it was terrible <laughs> yeah <laughs> just terrible <laughs> but so we'll also start talking next week about the proton precession magnetometer mm-hmm. which is what i would say most universities commonly have mm-hmm. in their shelves right now yeah we got a couple of those yep and then we'll eventually get on to the alkali vapor magnetometer which is the current hotness in terms of (laughs) field magnetometers and um a lot of universities are getting those now but they're they're a chunk to invest in yeah man we have a lot of magnetometers this is really interesting hmm yeah lots of ways to find metal somewhere wherever should should you decide that you're interested in magnetometry uh I encourage you to look on eBay. Just don't bid against me. <laughs> As I've picked up some old proton precession magnetometers for under $500 on eBay before. I'm surprised you let that little uh, let that little nugget out, John. <laughs> well, I don't know how many people feel compelled to clutter their garage with old geophysical instrumentation. I'm guessing if people are listening to this podcast, probably a few of them. <laughs> Yep, fair. <laughs> oh, that's great. 
My eBay handle is Mountain Mama. I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs) Don't bid against me either. (laughs) Oh, wonderful. And, you know, like, so there are some some tricks that are done in manufacturing now, like using opposite wound coils or toroids. Um, There's some more modern integrated circuits that make doing the summing or coulomb counting a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. But the basic principle hasn't changed, and it's really pretty straightforward. I mean, you can still get fluxgate magnetometers. It's not like these are ancient. I mean, some of them are really old, but it's not like these are not used anymore. Oh, no, they're being manufactured today. Right. Yeah. So so it's totally and, worth it to go do it. And they're relatively inexpensive compared to the other types of magnetometers that we're going to talk about. So they're what you're going to find in your digital compass units for aircraft, boats, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So when you when you built yours, you built it on like a little plexiglass thing, right? Yeah, so I made a see-through enclosure. Right. Uh, that was it, cool. It didn't look as good as it would now because I obviously didn't have the amount of tooling I do now. Like, I didn't have a laser cutter or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I had to go buy a drill to do it because I, I was an undergraduate living in a tiny apartment. <laughs> <laughs> that was full of... Yeah, tools and stuff like that. <laughs> right. But by the time I moved out, it was a little sketchy looking. <laughs> a little mad scientist-y. Just a little. Yeah. <laughs> um, That's but great. yeah, so I built that, and it was fun. Used it in a intro to geophysics class uh, that I was teaching there. Or uh, I guess I was TAing that, and then have used it again in another class that I was teaching. Um and there are several sets of plans out there online. I think mine is probably the first one that comes up when you do the Google search. Of course. Uh, but I'm hopefully going to be revising that as one of those cool educational kits. That's awesome. That's super cool. I'm going to have yeah. to go build my own now. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm shocked I haven't done it, actually. <laughs> I think it's because I'm so mad at magnetometers all the time. <laughs> Fair. Maybe you should start with a uh, a different geophysical instrument. Yeah, that's probably true. You know, gravimeters, because they're so useful. <laughs> hey, now. <laughs> oh, we'll get into that later. <laughs> yes. So there you go. That is the uh, the Fluxgate magnetometer, the thing that everybody says, why is it named Fluxgate? And once you understand it, you say, oh, yeah. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not some dude's name. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I mean, you could always use a Fluxgate magnetometer to, you know, see different traffic patterns of big magnetic things driving by, right? Yeah, like trains. Or bicycles. (laughs) Right. Uh, (laughs) These are even how, you know, it's like some stoplights sense things, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Uh, So... Without further ado, it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! I did not bring my cowbell on <gasps> oh travel. I'm God. sorry. No cowbell. Oh, this is only like the second time in history. Oh, okay. I'll have to. I'll have to step up. <laughs> yeah, clinking together hotel coffee cups didn't work. So. <laughs> well, I'm not waking my baby up, so too bad. I guess. <laughs> Um, speaking of uh, trains and bicycles, this is a terrible, terrible paper from listener Daryl <laughs> <laughs> that I can barely talk about. <laughs> so, 
oh, it's terrible. Um, and that's that's what it is. Um, it's about bicycles crashing at train stops, but the paper is factors influencing single bicycle crashes at skewed railroad railroad grade crossings. And this is by Ling et al. in the Journal of Transportation and Health. Right, and this comes out of Knoxville, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a link, there was a article on bikeradar.com that has terrible videos of this. <laughs> there's a supplementary material for this paper. Right, yeah. It's just, yeah. oh, God <laughs> bless. I couldn't, I can't watch it. <laughs> but it's exactly what it sounds like. Um, bicycles that crash when the bike path crosses a railroad crossing at a certain angle um there's lots of crashes and it's a bad deal and the um and i think even the author of this paper decided this would be a good thing to do because he himself had crashed there several times right and there's (laughs) nothing that can uh, spur on a scientific investigation more than going am i really bad at riding a bike (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, so this is one of those, as so many of our fun papers are, I feel like we have to like say why this is important. And it's, well, it's important because you can see it's in this Journal of Transportation and Health. And somebody that doesn't ride a bicycle might not think about when they're planning bicycle lanes, okay, there's a railroad track, who cares, right? But this is actually a shocking amount of crashes that occur at this particular railroad crossing yeah and even if you do think about it you think well i just need the bike path to cross the railroad track safely you're not thinking about what angle does it cross the railroad tracks at right you're just like i'm on the bike path here we go yeah but that's not true and now so now, now there's literature to back that up Yeah, and one of the reasons they said that they did this paper was because most literature on bicycle crashes focuses on bike-bike crashes, bike-people crashes, bike-car crashes, bike-any-other-mode-of-transportation crash. (laughs) Nothing really focuses on the bike-versus-slightly-rough railroad crossing. (laughs) Right, because this is an embarrassing way to crash, so you're not going to talk about this. You know, if you have like a spectacular mountain bike crash, you're going to talk about it. That's a one-off bicycle crash. But yeah, when you just fall in these little train tracks and then fall over and you're stuck, clipped into your road bike, it's real embarrassing. (laughs) I say from experience. Right. (laughs) Real embarrassing. But a lot of people do this. A ton of people crash at this one particular intersection that they set up a game camera at <laughs> to catch people going over it right so for two months they had a video camera constantly videoing this crossing mm-hmm. and there were over 2,000 bicycles that crossed it and the different sides of the road crossed the track at slightly different angles and riders would approach the tracks at different angles mm-hmm. so they measured those angles and realized that all of the crashes happen when the angle is below 60 degrees and most of them happen when the angle's below 30. Yes, and there was no crashes above 60 degrees. Right, none at all. Right, yeah. So, I mean, if you think about it, so you've got this railroad track and you obliquely try to drive over it with a bicycle, then it's very probable that your wheel is going to get stuck 
you know, right next to the tracks, which is exactly what happens in these terrible, terrible videos and the horrible figure in the paper. (laughs) (laughs) You have to wonder if the people in the videos and the paper ever knew. I know. I know. (laughs) Uh, And it's it's so terrible because they looked at these videos not just to say, okay, they crashed and we measure this angle. You know, they tried to, not tried to, they did gather a lot of other information, male or female. They tried to guess an approximate age for the cyclist and then all kinds of other things that they would definitely know, like road Speed, road condition, time of day. Right. So that stuff's obvious. I think this gender and age thing is very interesting because those cameras look kind of far away. Some people you could probably tell, but some were probably really guessed at. Right. And they even say that those results, though there might be slight statistical significance in one area or the other for a gender or an age range, it's probably not meaningful. And I take such exception to this because out of their 132 observations that they did, 32 crash samples and 100 successful traversings, 17% of the cyclists were women, yet they represented 38% of the crashes. Right. <laughs> and so that just made me angry. <laughs> um, but it was, it was very experienced because it says it's unclear why women are overrepresented Except that women may be less experienced cyclists. <laughs> okay. Right. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I've ridden my bike across a couple of states. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was encouraged by the fact that almost 80% of the cyclists had a helmet on. Yes, I was too, man. You wouldn't be caught dead wearing a helmet when I was little. That was so dumb. And now everybody does it. And that was very, that was, made me very happy. <laughs> But only 53%, or 56% rather, of the cyclists that crashed wearing a helmet. So maybe there's some experience, you know, you know, you, st- you stick the knife in the wall socket once and Yeah, ex- exactly. Those are the people that are like, no, helmets aren't cool, man. Yeah, those brain buckets are there for a reason. Exactly. Uh-huh. Um, and don't stick anything in any wall sockets no, as a disclaimer. Don't. <laughs> it hurts. <laughs> um, there's a pretty even split between mountain bikes and road bikes, which is a big deal because mountain bike tires are exceptionally wider than road bike tires. So it didn't matter which bike you were riding, you still crashed. <laughs> Right. Mm-hmm. Not many cruisers, too. This must have been like a legit bike trail where there weren't a lot of cruiser bikes hanging out. <laughs> right. And, you know, some of the suggestions from this paper is that we needed to design these crossings. Not only were they more perpendicular to the railroad crossing, but such that if people are staying on the insides of the corners to try to go as fast as they can or the least distance, that that minimum angle is still Mm -hmm. above 30 degrees, ideally above 60, but that's probably not always doable. Right. Um, It's interesting because it's like you don't even have to change the path, but just the way the path is marked. Right. So they have an example of a design in Knoxville where the minimum approach, if you stay between the lines of the bike lane, will be 37 degrees, and the designed approach, if you ride in the center, is 57. Right, exactly. And so that just has to do with 
drawing the lines at the correct, you know, the correct angles. You could actually cross that crossing wherever you wanted to, but you're probably likely to stay in the lines just because that's what you're visually looking at. Exactly. So there's a little bit of psychology in the design of this too. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I never would have thought to study, but you bet if I had uh, (laughs) bought it on those tracks, uh, something like this would have happened. Uh, Exactly. And it totally comes from, man, do I just stink at this, just like you said. (laughs) Or, hey, I bet a lot of other people have done this too. Oh, look, science. (laughs) Right. Um, But as you said, there are supplemental videos (laughs) attached are terrible terrible right yeah so i mean i guess you could say this paper tells you where to to draw the line when it comes Mm. to bike crossings Mm. on that note (laughs) on that note uh so we'd like to thank listener daryl who claims he has not had a bike train related (laughs) incident for sending this paper in it was quite enjoyable, and it will be, of course, linked in the show notes. It is open access. Yep. If you have a paper that you would like to hear us discuss, or you have thoughts on the Fluxgate magnetometer, or you're going to be building your own, we would <laughs> love to hear from you. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, send us your pictures of your projects. <laughs> Uh, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com you can also tweet us those pictures at don'tpanicgeo I am at Shannon Doolin John is at geo underscore Lehman I'm sure we can all sit around in the slack chat room and watch those videos again (laughs) thanks Daryl at the software underground we're on the don't panic channel and as always thank you very much to our patreon supporters if you would like to support our podcast and help us make more great shows for you patreon.com slash don't panic geo and until next week remember don't panic it's not an exact science Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.